Thanks for choosing this service from New Heights Fellowship Baptist Church of East Toledo. I hope you enjoy, but more importantly, I hope you grow. Let's talk a little bit about godly sorrow and repentance, but first, let's give a little worship to the Lord our God. All right, good morning, everybody. Good morning.
all of our members and visitors alike. It's always happy to see new faces here. Welcome. Um, uh, so real quick, there's just two announcements. One team leader meeting next Sunday following service. And then two weeks after that, the 26th, that's my birthday, <laughs> there will be a membership meeting immediately following service as well. So, what? Thank you in advance. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> and as you're coming, I'll check you off the list. Um, so, uh, real quick, we're going we're going to do. Um, it's not so different anymore, but we're going to open us. We're going to open us up in prayer. That it's English. It makes sense. Right? <laughs> uh, we're going to have a word of prayer to open up our service, and then we're going to spend uh, the next 90 seconds saying hello to at least three people. Somebody you know, someone you're related to, if there's any there, and someone brand new, or that you don't know. Does that make sense? Yes, makes sense to me. And just remember, just remember, if there's no blood relatives here, if you are a member of the body of Christ, everyone in that body of Christ is your family. So, Amen. Ha. All right, so, Mr. Michael, will you say, will you, yeah, we pray, thank you. <laughs> Father God, I'm going to thank you for this day. Thank you for the opportunity to come to your house and worship you. And uh, God, I ask you to be with us through service, that we lift our voices up, that be a praise to your name. As you be with the teachers, they teach the kids later, as the little ones go, be with the teachers, and uh, pray they enjoy their lesson, get something out of it, and be with our pastor <coughs> later as he brings the message he laid out in his heart to give to us. And again, bless our time here together, and to be with those that ain't here, for whatever reason, they're sick or hurting.
Amen. All right. So we come to that moment in time where we ask ourselves, how has the Lord been speaking for the last week? I do want to take a moment before I actually open the floor and, and, and ask anybody uh, what you might have heard from the Lord this week to remind you that we do uh, focus on a spiritual discipline. And uh, we made it to the Christmas season now, so it's time to kick off our six-month focus again. And this time, it's only going to be a five-month focus because it only goes through our anniversary as a church, which is in May. So for five months, we're going to focus on a spiritual discipline that um, Christians have found valuable over the years to help them in drawing closer to God, knowing more about God, and so on. And the one that we're going to focus on is journaling. Okay, And so... Um, Basically, to journal is simply to write to, to write something down. Okay, um, don't want you to confuse journaling with studying. Okay, if you if you pull your Bible out and you read it for a while, that is not studying. Okay, that's reading. If you pull your Bible out and you read it for a while and you ask yourself questions about what you read, you say, "Well, for God so loved, you know, what God is it talking about?" Says so God of creation, you know. What does it mean he so loved us? To love someone is to really care about them, be compassionate, want to do something for them. To, to not, it's an action, not just a feeling. Okay, shh, children. Thank you. Thank you. You'll be able to hear me. Thank you. All right. And so, if you do that, thinking about the words, asking the questions, that's not studying either. That's meditating. Okay? Meditating is when you ask yourself questions and think about what you've read. Meditating on the word. Right? Study is when you write something down. So if you read your Bible and you write down what words mean, what things mean to you, if you're filling in blanks in a Bible study book, that kind of thing, that's study. Journaling, you may have your Bible with you, you may not. You can set your Bible and your journal down next to each other and you might read something and then you ask God, okay, God, what do you want to tell me about that? Or what do you want me to see? Or what do I need to know? And you write some things down in your journal. Or you might come to the end of the day and you write something down about how, if you're an evening journaler, and you might write down something down about how your day went. If you're a morning journaler, you might write something down about how your sleep went, how yesterday went, what you anticipate the day will be like, that kind of thing. You really should include the date um, so that later when you look back, and it can be a really long time, as I'm going to give an example of that in a second, it can be a really long time, you can remember how things went. You can remember what happened then. It's like your own history book. But really, you're looking for trends in your relationship with God, what God was saying to you, what happened that day that might make a, might make a difference, might be important. Okay, that kind of thing. All right? And so, I'm going to give you an example. Um, the words that I'm about to read to you, no one but God and I have ever known. Since the year 1998, this is my 1998 journal. It was bought uh, by Sherry for me uh, for my fifth wedding anniversary. And these are three short entries during the month of June 1998. It says, today was Father's Day, 12 to 3 buffet. At that time, I was managing Pizza Hut, and I had to run the buffet. Uh, or they had to run the buffet. It wasn't even me. I don't think I was even working that day. It was a Sunday. Uh, Angela's birthday. Angelo's birthday, sorry. Call on my Lord. I made it. I made it to prayer this morning. We had a good discussion, but I was unprepared for the lesson in the book. 
What right do I have? Question mark. Lord, lead me to minister to them as you would have me do. I went to PH afterwards to drop off the card. I'm not even sure what PH is. Oh, Pizza Hut. Okay, very good. <laughs> Only David, Olivia, and Michael made the Bible study today and, and myself. I was tired all day and even did some work at home, which I prefer not to do. And then in the margin, I wrote the question, why don't we tithe? On the 22nd, which is the next day, how hard it is not to judge others. How hard it is not to belittle the failures of CH, PL, and L. And I intentionally did not include the names, but I know who they are in my head right now. I would have done better, or I always think I would, but would I? Those days I have become, I'm sorry, these days I have become unsure of what I want out of life except to know Jesus and to be a better Christian. Lord, guide me, please, into your arms, your kingdom, and let me bring those I love here with me, or let them bring me with them, whichever. Thank you, Lord. And then... Three days later, on the 26th, it says, Today, Phil, my boss, called me to Southwick and told me I was being let go. Bob Cott was a manager I was training. I don't know where he is now, don't know about it. I did share the doctor with him while I was training him. He was in the store all day. Thank you. Determination wasn't much of a surprise. No fear came with it. No anger, a little disappointment. What will happen next, I don't know. It's 1998. It's 21 years ago. Until I picked this journal up to bring it this morning for the object lesson that I just gave to show you how that can be, I would not have remembered. I couldn't even have told you what year I was letting go from Pizza I couldn't have told you anything about my Sunday school class, anything about my Bible study. I wouldn't have known whether I was tithing then or not, or what it was like. So the value of journaling is that you see the wave of your growth not just from the crest, where, which is where we usually are. When something's about to happen, we're trying to figure out what to do now, that kind of thing. Not just from the crest of the wave, but you see the whole wave as God is able to carry. Now, you're not going to be able to go back and read every one of your journal entries. You need to let the Lord lead you in that. If you get all wrapped up in your past life, you're wasting a lot of time. But you're able to read, digest, and dismiss, to join in the fight with God, and at the same time to fight back against those fleshly things that keep us from drawing close to God. So there's a value in it. And I'm encouraging you, and I'm encouraging the, the children's teachers who are in the room, and we'll talk a little bit about it on Tuesdays and things like that. This is our focus for the next roughly five months until we get to the anniversary. And it's a spiritual discipline. Remember that physical disciplines, they're awesome. They might make your body tougher, they might make you stronger, they might be able to think clearer, things like that. Spiritual disciplines are profitable for godliness. And so the same as you might decide to eat a little better, work out a little more, sleep the right hours, manage your thought processes, like when you see what you're reading, what you're watching, things like that, journaling is valuable for your soul. And it's a spiritual discipline that we learn about from God's Word. If you would be interested, I have two versions as an example of a journal. Nothing fancy at all. There are a lot of things out there. This is one you can carry with you. These came from... I think I'm for the Dollar Tree, two for a buck. Nothing big, right? You'll fill them up pretty fast if you're faithful to journaling, but you could write a little note, a paragraph and a half on each page, 
go to the next page, go to the next page, so on. Then you can stack them on your shelf, let God lead you when to go back to them. This is a different kind of thing. This is just a blank book. There's nothing on the cover, so the artistic folks in, in us could decorate the cover, and then you could write on each page however the Lord leads. And you might use half a page, maybe the whole page. Somebody might be particularly you know, into writing. They might write three pages in one day. I do recommend that your journal entries be something that don't wear you out. It is not meant to tire you physically. Don't sit there and go, well, I've got to write everything that happened in my day so that 10 years from now I'll be able to look it up, right? First of all, you, if you write that much each day, you won't be able to look it up because there'll be too much on each day. It's not like electronics, you can't scan it for a sort of word or a phrase or something. If you, and mentioning electronic, if you'd like to do that, you, there are tons of really good journaling apps for your phone, so you can do it on your phone. The Bible app, version, which a lot of people use, you can journal in there. You can put a private note on any verse in that app that no one else will see. And then you can pull those notes up later. You can also put a comment in that anybody else that's in your little crowd can see. And so you share with other people, right? But a comment is different from a note. A note is like a journaling entry for you. A comment is for everybody to see, all right? And there are tons of others. This one is a journal that was more fancy at the time. My utmost for my for his highest. My utmost for his highest, and then it actually had a little devotion on the left side and an opportunity to write in the, on the right side. All right, and so lots of different things that are out there. If you are somebody who would like to journal and you cannot afford a journal, first of all, I have some examples here you can take with you today. But I will buy the journal myself, and the church will happily provide it. There are a variety of things that are out there for you to use. None of which are very expensive. It's the truth. If you want to buy something fancy that's in leather, go for it. I don't really recommend that necessarily because you're going to do it. If you do it over your whole life, you're going to buy 15 of those a year or something. You know, I mean, could be that one's a whole year, but it was a $30 journal. So that's 30 bucks that you're out, you know. But you can buy the something for a dollar or two and then fill it up and then buy another one, right? And then stack them on your shelf. All right. So that, that's all that said, but this begins. It begins now. We're not done. We're going to journal if, as the Lord leads. I'm not asking you to do anything God doesn't want you to do, but as the Lord leads, you write stuff down. And then, uh, how has the Lord been speaking to you this week? Now, I hope you've been reading your Bibles. That's right, Bible intake. I hope you've been meditating on the Word. I hope you've been paying attention as you go, and the Holy Spirit is sharing things with you as you go. So, what did you see in this last seven days? Brother Perry. Man, it's been a while, right? The last week and a half from my walk, right, it's been pretty, I'll be real bad, right? I mean, really seriously bad, right? I even stopped reading... My, my scripture every day, right? I'm not just reading, right? I've been, I've been doing what you said. I'm, I'm studying, right? So I'm still in Exodus, right? And I'm right now where there's a lot of law and a lot of, you know, legalities, right? Yeah. But I'm trying to pay attention because I'm finding that, you know, even though that was then, and it's specific, it seems like there's a lot of specificity, right, as far as law, right? Yeah. Uh, if this happens, then this, 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 right? But... If you really think about it, you, and you look at it, right, you can apply it in your life now, right? It, it still applies. The law still applies. Right? Yeah. You didn't come to do away with it. Right. You saying so, I mean, anyway, so it's been like up and down, bumpy, right? Real bumpy all week long. About a week and a half, actually. So, uh, yesterday, I mean, it was yesterday. I was at uh, the coal mill, right? And I had a little period of time where I could sit in my truck. So, so okay, I'll bring out my favorite app, right? on my phone, right? And I got like several Bible apps, but I got one specifically, I really like it, right? I mean, you know, I mean, and, and so I went to it, right? And there's like this little thing floating up and down, right? And it won't let me access my Bible app, right? Uh -huh. And I'm like, 
and stand down all right. So I'm like, maybe it's something about the Bible. Right? So I pushed the button. <laughs> I pushed the button, man. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I, I, I'm just going to say it was a sight that's not, it's adult nature, right? Sure. Came up on my app, my favorite app, right? Now, I've noticed that lately you say, I've been under a lot of attack, man. My family, my house has been under a lot of attack from everywhere, man. <laughs> right? I mean, seriously. I mean, it's like, it's all like boom, boom from every direction, right? When that happened, I was like, wow, that's crazy, right? So I, I completely, I, 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 I know it's not the app, somehow it got in there something, some kind of way, so I, but I took the app off my phone, like, that's gone. <laughs> and uh, I told my wife about it, you know, dude, we're under attack, bad, I mean bad. You know, so if nothing else, it, it made me reaffirm the fact that I'm going in the right direction in my life, right? It can't be nothing else. He, he must really be afraid because if he's doing something like that, <laughs> you know what I mean? What is he afraid of? I mean, I mean what, why is he attacking me? Well, he's no longer going to have me like that. And it's like all the areas I've been attacked at, I sat back and thought about it and prayed on it, right, and looked at it and analyzed it, man. It's been every area, every single area in my life where I have fear, right? Now, I'm controlled a lot in my life by fear, man. I'm not a coward. I'm just, I'm a very fearful person. You know, like you said, when you get, you get in this situation when you lost your job, you became afraid, right? And so every area where fear is a possibility for me, man, it's been like them areas have been like, you see, and I'm like, whoa. <laughs> you know, so I mean, I'm just, if nothing else, just keep keep me in prayer, you know what I mean? And, uh, but God is great. He's, he, you know, he shows you, you see, what's going on, right? So. See my wife last night, you said we sat down and we prayed. And, uh, you know, I woke up this morning in a much better situation. <laughs> and it's like, wow, man. You know, um, don't be discouraged, man, when, 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 you, when, you, when you find yourself in those situations. If, if, you, if, you, if you're doing something in your life, God, continue to do it diligently. Amen. And don't let yourself be swayed. I think that's interesting. Um, <clears throat> Sometimes it feels like because we're in the flesh and we're we're attacked like that, that some of the greatest evidences that we have that we're walking the Lord is that the enemy gets in an uproar. If the things like that happen. The truth is the greatest evidence should be the Holy Spirit and us testifying in our hearts. But then sometimes, you know, just to kind of give you an example, uh, if we really knew the word like we should, we wouldn't need an app. You know what I'm saying? So we're behind the game. But then the enemy is trying to take away from us that which we need to get caught up. <laughs> That's what he's trying to do. So it's a good word. That's a really good word. Good stuff. And I think it was sermon speech for as well. Anybody else see something this week? Um, I was going to say, when I roll to church, um, I'm, I'm, I, I love to get in the zone. Like in my house, like I, I set a rule probably about a year, year ago. I think it was. It's been about a year, right? probably a little bit more than a year. Like on Sunday mornings, we don't we don't turn on the TV and play anything secular. Usually, you know, I have a house full of kids. And so it's like, you can watch TV, 
but it better be God. You can play your music, and even Christian is actually, he's been working on it because, you know, he doesn't like to listen to the type of gospel I listen to, so he'll listen to his Christian rap um, with his headphones on, like, he won't say too much, and even in the car, like, when I'm sitting there blasting it, everybody knows I like to sing, and it's really funny because, you know, sometimes we get discouraged when we're worshiping when other people are around, and so I had a, a car load full this morning, and usually I feel like sometimes certain worship songs kind of set the tone. Um, when I'm on my way here. And um, the last song that played, and it's always like God is always right on time because the last song that played was Lord, You Are Good. Mm. And pretty much the word said, um, you know, um, Lord, you're good. You've been so good. You've been better than good. I can't praise you enough. I owe you my life. I can't praise you enough even if I tried because you've been so good. And, you know, I don't care who's in my car. If I'm worshiping God, I'm going to worship God. And I was like teasing the girls, like, are we on my, like, you guys are asleep. Like, we're on our way to church. We're going to praise God. But just listening to that song, and I've heard it so many times, but it always, like, resonates one way or another because, uh, you know, the, the, the last part of the song is so many doors you've opened, so many ways you've made, so many times you've healed me, you've been better than good. And I've been through so much in 2019, so much, and even so much that I haven't even shared. And, um... That God has been so good because I have been struggling and, you know, I feel like sometimes when we get up here and we, we give our testimony or we, we share what God has, for, that what God had for us this week and we want to share it because, you know, maybe it's for somebody else. I've been trying to be more transparent because um, a couple weeks ago, Ms. Sherry shared that, you know, usually when somebody says, how are you doing? I'm okay. And sometimes I'm not okay, and I need to be more honest with that. Um, you know, I say when people ask me, how are you doing? I'm blessed. I am blessed because, you know, I woke up this morning. I drove here. I got to worship. I got to sing. But I have been struggling so bad. But I know he is still good. So even in the midst of my struggles, God is still good. So even, even somebody like myself who's been going through, I've been going through trials. I can still say God is so good. So just remember, like, even in the storm, it doesn't, it doesn't feel like he's good. It doesn't feel like he's there. It doesn't feel like he hears you, but he hears you. And sometimes you go through these storms because, again, like I said last week, like your testimony might be just what somebody needs. Um, even in the midst of my storms, I can still say God is good. My heart has been so heavy for the last couple weeks. But I know he is still good. I know he's still with me. And I know he's still holding on to me. But that's not going to stop me from praising God. So even, even when I'm sad, like, you know, the kids, they might think I'm crazy. But I love God. God is so good. So even, even if you're going through something right now, even if you're struggling with something, you're still here. Right. Even if it hurts, thank God that you can feel that pain because you're here. Because some people can't feel it anymore. So just take that. Go through your story because when you when you make it out, it doesn't look like it while you're in it. But it's when you get out, you can share. Like, look. And I, I feel like I'm halfway out. I'm almost out. So I can say God is good because even in the midst of my storms, I know he still loves me. I know he still has his hand on me. And he is good. So... God is the light at the end of the tunnel. Yes, he is. Yes, he is. All right, anybody else? 
I'm trying to be short. Three things. I was going to play a video, but I just thought just saying it so you can hear a couple words. I think the you, little kids, you can hear this too, and I think you'll find a lot of this. The first thing I just remember when I just encourage people and texts I've shared all these years, when I'm going through a season, I'm going through stuff, God reminds me that it was his in the first place. I've been, and it's come back on me, and I feel like I could share it again. But I was just kind of reminding myself that when the enemy, sin, sickness, lies, all that stuff on that, when he comes to just remind you of your past, which this five seconds is your past. Present is past when it's like seconds over, it's your past. Right. But when he reminds you of your past, you just remind him of his future. He's eternally defeated. He eternally lost. In Christ, he's done. And he still can attack, but in the, in the end, and even now, he's done. He's defeated. And remind yourself of your future. This isn't, this isn't the end. This is just the beginning. And our beginning starts in heaven. So we just thank God for that. But uh, just a song that my son wants to be singing all the time, just, just charge me up. There's a song that I, uh, uh, there's only a couple songs I know by heart. But, um, you know, Newsboys, I'm not going to sing all the song, but just a couple parts I think we could really hear something from it. But um, we believe by Newsboys, and I'm sure you've heard it, but it, it just says we believe in God the Father. We believe in Jesus the Christ. We believe in the Holy Spirit that has given us a new life. We believe in the crucifixion. We believe that He's conquered death. We believe in the resurrection, and He's coming back again. Amen. And then the final thing is this, and I, I just, if you really, I hope hopefully you hear something that catches your ear, your heart, and also just encouraging you or re-encouraging you, is if you don't have something to say, you do have something to say. Maybe you need to say it to yourself. Maybe you need to say it to someone else. Maybe there's a video you can share. Maybe there's a song you can sing. Maybe you can't do something today because your inspiration lies somewhere else. And maybe you have to re-inspire. It might sound weird, but the enemy needs to be reminded he's done. I mean, he is always going to bring the attack if, we, if he thinks he can have an attack. If he thinks he's got a strategy, an attack, your strategy is that, you know what, you can have the biggest strategy you want. My God is in charge. My God is in control. And my God has defeated you. So bring the attack. Because he's going to attack back. We have an absolute, you know, I'm a very insecure person. I do a lot of insecurities. I don't say it on purpose of speaking in my life. I realize my weaknesses. But because of my insecurity, I find my security in Christ. I am so shaken that sometimes my God is never shaken. And that's who I can trust. In. And sometimes I feel like I have no support from anyone, and I need that support. I have to remind myself that God is the one and only support that I need. And then others come next. But at the end of the song, it says, oh, I love this. I could see it. But for the so lost be found. And the dead be raised. In the here and now, let your love invade. And the church live loud, our God will say, we believe. If the church lives loud, our God will say, we believe. Our God cheers for us. Our God encourages us. Our God, His angels, is constantly just like, yeah, they're, they're doing it. That's the end. That's exactly. Any father, any dad appreciates when their kids are on the right track. And that's what He does. When we're on the right track, God is cheering for us. But then it says, for the gates of hell will not prevail, for the power of God has torn the veil. Everybody knows when Jesus died on the cross, that curtain was torn. That separation between humanity and God is no longer there. That, that curtain is torn. The power of God tore that veil. We didn't tear that veil. We can't even tear it today. We cannot have a connection with God if it wasn't for Jesus. And we cannot have any connection with God if it wasn't for what He does every day in our lives, reminding us that we have a relationship because of who He is and who we are in Him. And then it says, 
the power of God has torn the veil. Now we know God's love and will never fail. And I will just say this, we will fail. We fail every day. But God does not fail in us. God does not fail with us. And God does not fail over us. That in Christ, there's no failure in Him. But in us, there's failure. I fail every single day of my life. Every moment, I'm going to be like, yep, I failed again. But God has never failed me. So if I haven't had any word of encouragement for you, then I hope that you find something. But for those that, you know, I felt like, you know, I'm sharing because it uplifts you, then, you know, praise God anyways, but praise God. So that's all I have to say. Well, let's pray together and, uh, and we'll proceed. Father in heaven, you are that awesome God, creator of the universe, author of our beginning and our end. You desire the relationship, personal one-on-one, -on -one, uh, the God of the universe that could fill literally every space that there is with just one of us. And you went to great lengths to secure it. And we confess, Lord, that we have, we have seen our weaknesses, never the extent of them or the extent of their number. We have failed, we have made mistakes, we've sinned against you and against ourselves. And yet, and yet your love, your mercy, and your kindness saw fit to put the ramifications of that failure on Jesus Christ, your Son, that we might know your righteousness through him. Lord, help us. Thank you, Lord, that we did get up today. Thank you that we are here today. Thank you that we have the opportunity to encourage one another, to see you at work in us and through us and uh, and we're a little less willing on us and to us. Father, you're God. We, as one, and I hope as a whole, authorize you in this place. The truth is we would only have the authority to hold you back if you allowed it to us, and you have in our free will. And so we ask you, Lord, to work in us. We plead with you. That as the enemy attacks, you will rebuke those attacks. That as our hearts sorrow, you will lift us up. That as our minds struggle to comprehend the greatness that you are and the greatness of what you've done, that you will help us see it and respond to it in a way that honors you. Or as we give of our tithes and offerings, desire to worship you, to recognize your value and your ability to take little things and make them transcend, make them great, make them powerful. Even as the Lottie Moon offering closes out today, Lord, we think about how there are people in darkest places on the earth. Their minds are filled with, with murder or hate or, or just with survival, and sometimes that results in great fear and a great hope that they need is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there are folks who risk their lives and their family. I know a man who took his wife and his newborn daughter, less than a year old, to a country where the gospel is just simply, frankly, not allowed. And then you can be killed there. In fact, it's a capital offense to share it. And you know them better than I do. And you know the people that they can talk to about Jesus better than I do. And you know the need for the word there better than I do. By no means am I preaching to you, Lord. I'm simply asking your will be done, your kingdom come. You are our God. 
We trust you with all that we are. We submit the remainder of our time together, and I hope this whole day and every day to come into your control because of your grace and mercy and kindness toward us. Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for teaching us what love is about. Thank you for letting us serve. Thank you for letting us be ready and able. The list goes on. God bless each person present as we give, as we serve, as we sing, as we search. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Thank you very much.
sand A fragile flower stands apart But there in that barren ground I feel like the only one Trying to serve you with all my heart
quick I want to do a brief commercial uh, and it's, it's really just for y'all. Um, 
when I was thinking about becoming a pastor, and what had happened was New Heights um, had voted in a meeting to make me their mission pastor, and I was dead set against it. In fact, when they said that, I said, no, I don't think so. <laughs> uh, and uh, so they asked me to agree to pray about it, which I had learned my lesson before, saying I wouldn't pray about it because God made me like sick and tired for two days. And so I said I would, and then lo and behold, when I said, God, is this something I'm supposed to do? God said, well, yeah, do that. And so then I was kind of like, but God, there are certain things that I will have to do, like preach or teach every week, sometimes once or twice a week, things like that. And uh, I knew at that time it, it was taking me about between 20 and 25 hours to write a sermon at that time. And that's a lot of time. <laughs> that's a lot of, of, of the week. And I was looking at... I, I was looking at starting seminary or hoping to, and I didn't know what that was going to look like. And I was, I'm just like, I don't think that's, the math didn't seem to add up, but God was telling me to do it, so I said I would do it. And uh, one of the fears that I had was that as a Christian, I would not grow once I began to focus so much on everybody else's growth. You follow? So once I'm concerned about hearing from God what it is I'm supposed to say to others, I was fearful that I would not hear from God as much what God was saying to me, and I knew I had a lot of growth and development to do. And um, New Heights has made it, the entire time that I have been here, New Heights has made it so that I have grown. We had a period of time uh, uh, where, when we were on Main Street, where we would not have anyone speak at the inspirational moment except for Brother Tony. He would come every Sunday morning faithfully with something prepared for us. And uh, during that period of time, God spoke through Brother Tony to me incessantly. I grew. And in the last several years now, we usually have someone speak up during the inspirational moment time, and I have grown. I was up here praying, thanking God for some, fo some things that folks said during inspirational moment time, uh, and it touches my heart that I get to be a pastor in a church where the church is listening. And I can't say it's everybody. I'm not judging. or you know, But I believe the church is listening to God, and then the church says what they hear from God. And, and when that happens, I hear from God through that filter. Okay, So I just want to say thank you for that as a pastor. I don't know if God will have me here until I die and go to heaven or whatever, but at least I feel comfortable. I believe that God will have me grow here as long as I'm here, and I'm grateful for that. Okay, that being said, I want to tell you a brief story. When I was 16 years old, and I was attending Northwood High School, um, there was a flyer on the wall. I was almost 17, in fact. It was the spring, uh, probably late January, February, I first read about it, but we didn't start until after I was 17. But. And the flyer was, you can learn how to fly a single-engine plane. You can learn, you get your pilot's license as a teenager. And I thought, man, that would be awesome. I would love to do that. I, I like the idea of flying. And so, um, long story short, I looked into it with two of my other friends, and we all decided you had to get a group of three because that was the only way it was financially viable for the pilot. And so we uh, signed up to, in the spring of 1987, we signed up to take pilot's lessons to fly a single engine plane. Fast forward to the end of that, we're almost done. I knew how to do the pre-flight checks. I knew how to fly the plane up, down, land the plane, take off the plane. I was doing pretty good. I not, not close to getting my license, not remotely close. It takes 
80 hours of flight time in the cockpit with a licensed pilot, and I had two. <laughs> so I could do these things, but by no means could I legally do them by myself, okay? But I could do them. And I could probably still do them today because they're not nearly as complicated. I would, have I would have to have the checklist for the pre-flight and post-flight, but other than that, I, I probably could do it to even still today. So if I was, I'm like that guy, maybe I would, if they say, is there a pilot on board? The plane is crashing. I'm that guy that would go up there and white-knuckled guide the 747 down in the landing and they would make a movie about it. You know, I'm that guy. Um, but anyway, uh, toward the end of that, we flew to Put-in-Bay Island. Now, most people don't realize that Put-in-Bay has an airstrip on it. It does. However, Put-in-Bay's airstrip has what's called an elbow in the middle of it. And so only small planes, like single-engine planes, can land on Put-in-Bay Island. And my, the pilot who was teaching us wanted to take us there and show us that experience. And so as we're nearing to Put-in-Bay Island, he's explaining how the airstrip has an elbow in it, which about 40% of the way down, it turns 60 degrees. So you're landing this plane at, uh, depending on what the wind's, wind's blowing at outside, because people don't necessarily realize that, but if the wind blows high enough, a plane can fly without an engine, you know what I mean, if it's blowing fast enough. So, but the wind was blowing pretty fast that day, so we're gonna land this airplane at about uh, 75 mile an hour, and then at 40% down the railway, runway, before we could really get much braking done, we had to turn a 60 degree turn. So it's like this, at 75 mile an hour. And, if you, and when planes do that, they tend to tip, and if you tip and the wing hits the ground, everything crashes and we all blow up, basically. You know? And he said, so do you want to land the plane? To my friend, it was his turn to fly the plane, and he said, do you want to land the plane on Putney Island? And he's like, uh, no, <laughs> I don't want that responsibility. And he said, well, no, if something goes wrong, I'll take over the controls, it'll be okay. And, and that was the rule, if, if the pilot said so, you immediately had to relinquish the controls and he would take over, that was the rule. And he said, no, I'm, I, I just don't want to do it. I don't want to take the risk. And I said, I'll do it, whatever, you know? <laughs> if you think I can do it, I'm pretty sure I can do it. And so I, I Flew the airplane to Put-in-Bay, and we landed on the island, and sure enough, it was scary, really scary. And the plane tried to tip as I went around the bend, and I struggled it like this, and we went around the bend, and then I, he said, okay, now hit the brakes hard, and we hit the brakes hard, and we stopped like four feet before the end of the runway. And then he said, okay, now we're going to really slowly turn around so that the, you know, the wing didn't hit the stuff that was on the end, whatever, and, and we parked the plane, we spent half a dozen hours on Putin Bay, including we went to a winery, which we were all too young to buy wine, but all three of us bought a bottle of grape juice and a glass of bottles, and he bought a bottle of wine, and we put them in the bag, we put them in the back of the cargo in the airplane, which is basically goes the pilot seat, the co-pilot seat, then, a, then another seat, another seat, and then there's a little space that's about three foot by four foot and about five foot, six foot high, maybe five foot high, that's the back seat, if you will, or the back, where like the, the boot, the trunk. Um, and it's just behind the back seat. There's no door to it, so you open there and you just shove this stuff in there. So it seems pretty secure, right? <clears throat> and so then we get ready to take off, and he says to my other friend who was supposed to take off, because it was his turn to fly, he says, do you want to take off? And he's like, we have to reach airspeed after the turn, right? And the problem was the wind was blowing in the direction where we were starting on the long end. So you had to go 60% of the runway before you could open the throttle full up. And the plane goes, as you're going down the runway, and you open the throttle full up, and the plane goes, really loud, and starts to speed up, and you only got, you know, whatever that was, probably, I don't know, maybe 80 feet, 100 feet, or whatever, you get up to speed before you take off, because you got the wind. And the wind's blowing 30 mile an hour, so we really only needed about 
65 miles an hour. So we're going to be able to go like 30 toward the curve and then open it up. And, I'm, and he's like, no, I don't want to do it. And he, so he looked at my other friend who wouldn't land. And he said, do you want to do it? And he said, no. And he looked at me. He said, you'll do it, won't you? And I said, sure, whatever. Let's do it. And so we, so we get on the plane. And, and so I flew for, so everybody else got uh, an hour and a half of flight time. And I got actually three hours of flight time because neither one of them would fly their last half hour. Right? So I'm flying. You can't switch seats while you're flying. Like, if you're flying, you don't get out of the seat and crawl in the back seat. Something. You can't do that. Even if the other guy starts flying, it's still too dangerous because you'll kick buttons or you'll kick the... It's just not safe. So we weren't even allowed to take our seatbelts off. So we're flying back from Putin Bay, and he says, well, let's fly over downtown. That's always a treat. Everybody likes to fly over downtown. So we fly down downtown, and there's Fifth Third Building Glass. We see our reflection in there. You got to be 500 feet up, but, you know, he played a little fast and loose with that, so we flew lower than 500 feet fairly frequently. And then we get up, to, get up there, and... Uh, he says, I want to show you something cool. And I'm like, okay. That's, we just did Put-in-Bay twice. And in fact, it rained. When we left Put-in-Bay right afterwards, it rained. We threw, flew through like 20 minutes of rain. So we were on electronic instruments only. So you can't, you couldn't see. So we were flying back toward Toledo blind, which was also an experience. I had all those experiences in one day. And, we, and he goes, here's what I want you to do. I want you to gently aim the plane up, and then you're going to throttle back and push the, plane, the, the controls down. And if you've ever been on a roller coaster, you know what's about to happen, right? So I do exactly what he says. And what happens is the gravity in the cavern is reduced to zero. That's what happens. So you push up on your seatbelt. So my whole body goes and while I'm flying the plane. At the same moment that that happens, the wine bottle and grape bottles that are in the bag in the back of the cargo area go right up behind the back seat. Now, I'm not looking because I'm flying the plane. I'm in my seat. I've got the controls. I'm thinking, I don't know what's going to happen next. It feels like the plane is literally going to fall out of the sky because there's no gravity in here, and that can't be good, and, and whatever. All right? So the wine bottle and grape bottle that grape juice bottles, that fly, that's what this message is about. So I want you to bear that in mind as we look at this text. Those bottles floating in the air behind the seat are what this message is about. So grab your Bibles if you would. And turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Amen. This is God's word. We're going to read a dozen verses. Actually, we're going to read a baker's dozen verses because I said it was through 12, but the truth is it's through 13 because I don't like to end in the middle of a thought. All right. So I'm going to read them. I'm going to explain them. Then I'm going to break down a few points and a few things that you got to see. And I don't for sure know everything that God is going to say, um, but I'm trusting in the Lord because this is a powerful passage of scripture and it changed me already. Therefore, dear friends, since we have such promise... We should wash ourselves clean from every impurity of the flesh and spirit, making our sanctification complete in the fear of God. In other words, if God has really done this for us, then we have a responsibility to live a certain way, to be a certain kind of people, right? And to exercise the spiritual gift, exercise the spiritual disciplines, to let the Holy Spirit have his way. Sanctification means being set apart. So we're making our sanctification complete. I mean, we are actively participating in our own being set apart. You follow? That's what he's saying. All right? <clears throat> Take us into your hearts. We've wronged no one, corrupted no one, defrauded no one. I don't say this to condemn you, for I have already said that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. So he's writing to the Corinthian church and he's saying, you know, accept us, listen to what we're saying, you know, uh, feel for us. We are... We are servants of the kingdom of God, just as you are. And, he says, and we are, you're already in our hearts. We already desire 
And I would say this to you, just one on, one, me to you, everyone in this room, even some of you I haven't seen in a while, right? You're already in my heart. I, whatever I say, if it offends you, I don't mean to. It's not my choice. I'm just going to say what I think that God would say to us through his word, okay? And, and I'm asking you to take this word, whether I get it right or wrong, take this word into your heart and let God work in you today. That's what, that's what the Bible is all about. That's the Holy Spirit desires in us and for us. And that's what I desire for you. And I hope you would desire the same for me. So like if you're sitting there, you're going like, I can't learn anything today. At least go, man, I hope the pastor learned something today. Right? Let's decide whose side we're on. And we've got to be on each other's side if we're on Jesus' side. He says, I have great confidence in you. I have great pride in you. And I'm here to tell you, I have great confidence in you. I have great pride in you. I believe in the church. I believe in God at work in the church. He says, I am filled with encouragement. I am overcome with joy in all our afflictions. You know, it's not easy sometimes. We talked about that, right? You face difficulty. But even in difficulty, there is a reason to be overcome with joy. So the question is, is there a reason to be sorrowful? He says, verse 5, In fact, when we came into Macedonia, we had no rest. Instead, we were afflicted in every way. Struggles on the outside, fears inside. But God, who comforts the humble, comfort us by the coming of Titus. There's a name we might know. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort he received from you. So now, Titus came to them and he explained to them how he had gone to the church in Corinth and how they had comforted Titus and even supplied him with resources to come and comfort Paul and the, those who were traveling with him. And he says, so we're comforted by the coming of Titus, but not only by the coming of Titus, but by the way he tells us you received him. He announced to us your deep longing, your sorrow, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. And sometimes we see the desires of other people and that they are for us and that they love us and they are inviting us into relationship and that's a great encouragement to us. You can be in a dark place, but if somebody loves you, then that's important, right? Verse 8, For although I grieved you with my letter, I do not regret it. See, Paul had written them a letter before and it was a, kind of a rough letter. He kind of chastised them, hurt them even. He says... Even though I grieved you with my letter, I do not regret it. Even though I did regret it, since I saw that the letter grieved you, though only for a little while. Notice he wrote a letter that hurt them, that brought them sorrow, that brought them a feeling of difficulty, that brought them to a place of regret. And he regretted having to write the letter. But now he doesn't regret having written the letter. So there's a change. There was a time for that regret when he regretted having to write a chastising letter. It brought about regret in them, but now he doesn't regret having written the letter. He says, now I am rejoicing, not because you were grieved, but because your grief led to repentance. In other words, I'm not glad now that I wrote the letter and upset you. I'm not some kind of jerk, right? He says, rather, I am rejoicing now because your grief, sorrow, regret, it's all the same word in this text. In fact, that's one of the interesting. Your translation may be slightly different in some of these words, and the reason is because it's using the same word over and over again, but it's hard for us as humans to grasp the difference between grief, sorrow, or regret. But that word means all three. That means all three of those things. It's the same word. So you could use the word regret, sorrow, or grief every time that you see it in this text. He says, For you were grieved as God willed. 
the way that God wants us to be grieved. Well, that's good. I want to know what that is. So that you didn't experience any loss from us. So even though we wrote you the letter, you didn't go backwards. Even though it was a letter that made you upset, you didn't go backwards. You didn't fall apart. You didn't become depressed because of what you were hearing and so on. Verse 10. For godly grief produces a repentance not to be regretted and leading to salvation. But worldly grief produces death. So now there's a difference. So very simply, I want you to understand that Almost every time in the New Testament that you see the word death, it's talking about separation from God. In this case also. So every time you see the word death, it's talking about separation from God. Right? So the wages of sin is death. That's separation from God. This too is talking about a separation from God. So worldly grief produces death means worldly grief leads you to a place distant from God. So people get angry at God because things didn't go right. People get sad and they take it to God and they don't feel comforted the way they expect, so now they're distant from God. They feel like God's not doing what God should do. People call on God's promises. No! You know, think of Eliphaz in the book of Job, how he went to Job. And you could read in chapter 4 of the book of Job, and I, we won't go there because it's long, but you can read how he was witnessing to Job, trying to bring Job out of his different spot out of his difficult spot that he was in. And most of what he says about God is true. And most of what he says about men is true. But what doesn't happen is you don't hear in his voice any regret for his own wrongdoing. Rather, he just says, God, why don't, God, why don't you just kill me? Either just kill me and get it over with, or cleanse me and make me clean. Whatever. It's not like I have any control over it anyway. There's no regret. He's being, he's basically chastising God. And that's not the friend of Job that you listen to, by the way. He's the wrong guy. Because he doesn't have any regret for what he's done, it doesn't lead him to godly repentance. In fact, it produces death in him. You see him separated, so much so that it's, at the end of the book, Job has to pray for him in order for him to be able to be forgiven. And if Job had refused to do so, according to what God said, he would not have been forgiven. So this godly grief is not like that worldly grief that produces separation from God. This good grief, if you will, for godly grief, and again, this is sorrow, this is regret, it's all of those things. Godly grief, sorrow, regret, produces a repentance not to be regretted and leading to salvation. And what is repentance? It's turning to God. It's a more full turning to God. So, if you talk about, let's talk about regret, using this word for regret. So then, we did something, we know we did something, and it was wrong. And I now realize it was wrong. And I go, man, I wish I had done that. Right? Now, there's a couple things you can do with that, right? You can go, oh, I wish I had done that, so now I'm going to make, I'm going to make a restitution. I hurt somebody. So I'm going to go give them some money. I'm going to go take care of them. I'm going to go apologize. I'm going to do everything I can to make right what I did wrong. That's one thing. That's a pretty good thing. In fact, John calls those uh, works in keeping with repentance. If you truly don't want to have done what you did, then you do work in keeping with repentance, right? Not necessarily works of salvation, they're not works of grace, per se, but there ought to be works that line up. If you truly regret it, then there ought to be works that line up, right? But we realize, don't we, that when we do those works of restitution, they really don't ever completely make it right. When you hurt somebody, psychologically, emotionally, or God forbid, physically, and, they, and they have, you know, they're paralyzed for life or something like that, you really can't ever make it right, can you? When somebody comes to you and they say they're sorry after they've really hurt you, does that just make it go away? When they come to you and they say you're sorry and then from that, from there for 20 years, they give you a Christmas card, a birthday card with a $50 Visa gift card in it. Does that ever make the pain go away? 
pain. That's not what makes the pain go away. So if something makes the pain go away, it's something other than that. There is a limit to how far restitution can go. We realize because we have sinned, we have created a break between us and that person that isn't healed just by trying to make restitution. That requires something more. Well, it requires forgiveness, which is something you can't do. You can ask for it, but you can't cause forgiveness. You can't you can beg them for it. You can't cause them to forgive. They have to forgive. And then when they forgive, a healing process begins and they eventually get over it. Right? So we realize that, there is, that restitution is not enough. A feeling of regret or repentance of what we did wrong, that's not enough. What's enough? Well, there, the, the bottom line is once you've done something wrong, there literally is nothing that's enough to completely do away with it. You follow? There isn't anything. It takes a miracle. It takes a movement in the spirit that we cannot manifest ourselves. If, whether it be regret, and, I, and primarily that's what he's talking about here because he's talking about they regretted their evil actions, he regretted sending the letter, or whether you apply these same words to sorrow or mourning, there really is only so much you can do. It only goes so far. And that should lead you to cry out to someone who can do more than you can. Not another human being, because they can only really do, they can do something a little different from what you could do, but they can still only do what a human can do but to God. And that is the purpose, he says, of this grief. It produces a repentance not to be regretted and leading to salvation, but worldly grief produces death. Verse 11. For consider how much diligence this very thing, this grieving as God wills, has produced in you. What a desire to clear yourselves. What indignation, what fear, what deep longing, what zeal, what justice. Now, another translation there uses the word revenge, and that technically is a correct translation too, but it's talking about making wrongs right. And so justice is a good, good translation for modern-day English. In every way, you have commended yourselves to be pure in this matter. So even though I wrote to you, it was not because of the one who did wrong, meaning, in other words, he's saying, I didn't write the letter to correct the guy who was wrong. It was not because of the one who did wrong or because of the one who was wrong. I didn't write the letter to comfort the one who was wronged. Now hear this. Now this is super important. He didn't write the letter to correct the guy who did wrong and he didn't write the letter to help the person who was wronged. Why bother writing the letter? That's what, that's what naturally comes to mind, right? If there's, there's only two people in any conflict. And if you're not writing the letter to correct the person who did the wrong, you're not writing the letter to comfort the person who is wrong, then why bother writing? And he says, but in order that your diligence for us might be made plain to you in the sight of God. And for this reason, we have been comforted. In other words, he's saying, I get it. You can't right the wrong that you've done and you can't be comforted by me in the wrong that you have received. There's nothing magical about what I write to you, is what he's saying. But rather, he's saying, when you respond to the writing and you love me back and you love each other the way you're supposed to, you have true repentance, you, you seek out God, then there is a miracle that happens and you become something different than you were before. Okay. So that's the text for the day. There are three things that I want you to see in here. Um, the first thing that I want you to see in here is that um, there is a time for grieving, maybe more than one. He gives us an example. He says, number one, I grieved when I made you sad. 
So we regret when we hurt other people. You ought to, anyway. If you're a dad in the room and you've ever had to spank your child, and afterwards you said, man, that was fun. I wish I could do that again. You have a problem and should probably seek counseling. <laughs> we don't spank our children because we like to spank our children. Don't ever do that. In fact, if you ever find out that you like spanking somebody, don't ever do it again because you've got a problem. On the other hand, if you spank your child because the ultimate, it's, it's not even, I, I try to explain this to the children in my household, and I haven't had to spank Aaron Arden for a really long time. They're pretty much too big for that now. We don't spank as a punishment. And we don't spank to fix what they did wrong. So what's the purpose of corporal punishment? So that they can be right in the future. So that they can be strong. So that they can know. So that they can make a better choice. Right? That's the sovereign goal of parenting. Is to pave the way for your children so that they can draw closer to God. So that they can be so they should have works that are godly, but they don't. And they need to know they don't, so that they can know in the future when they do. That's what it's all about. There's no enjoyment in that for parents to have to discipline their children. In fact, the last time corporal punishment actually brought me any joy was when I said, I haven't had to do that in a long time. That was pretty awesome. You know, haven't had to spank or discipline or, or put any punishment into effect for weeks or months. And when I stop and have those thoughts, then I feel like, yeah, they get it. They're trying to do what God wants them to do. They're trying to live right. Now, I understand. I'm not judging salvation. I'm not saying that they understand everything or that they're perfect or they're righteous or anything like that. But as we'll see in a minute, there is a place for those works. And so the first thing I want you to see is that there is a time to regret. And one of those times... <clears throat> is when you have to be the instrument of God's correction. I want you to think about for a second. The last time you had to say to somebody, you know, I think that might be a sin, and you probably want to repent of that, and don't do it ever again. I did that the day before yesterday with somebody. I did not want to have to have that conversation because I was fearful. I, I, I was feeling like it was, it was possible that that person would be filled with sorrow over what they had done. I knew that, that it would cut them to quick because they're basically a good person. I, can't, I don't testify about other people's salvation, but they profess to be saved. And I'm thinking to myself, when I say this to them, this could put them in a really bad spot. And so I regretted having to do that. Now, most of us regret having to bring people to accountability, but it isn't like that isn't why. We regret having to bring people to accountability because it makes us uncomfortable. You got to say to them, I don't think you should do that. And they might get mad at you. They might say something nasty. It feels uncomfortable. Your heart might race. Your hands might sweat. Right? That's why we don't want to do it. But if your purpose for doing it is not because, A, you enjoy it, or B, because you have to right the wrong that was done, if it's not about justice, if it's about that person drawing closer to God, if that's godly grief that's generated, if they go, yes, I get that. I see that's not what God wants me to do. Man, I do need to change that. I need to seek out God in this. Then how could you not? How could you not want them to draw closer to God? That's crazy. Why? So you can avoid being uncomfortable? If that's the case, I think maybe you need a little bit of godly regret. You need to realize that you're failing in speaking on behalf of God when, when the time comes. So there is a time to regret and yet go forward. What about if we did something wrong? 
I did something wrong roughly 20 years ago. And time and again, the Lord will allow or the enemy will jump in there. Maybe, I I mean, the Lord must allow it because he doesn't do anything that the enemy doesn't do. And so it pops into my head, that wrong thing that I did. Still there. Over 20 years ago. Ever happened to you? Well, what if I did something wrong? What do I do about that? Well, I regret it. So I repent and I turn to God and I say, God, you know, if without your forgiveness, that thing that I did, which is one of the worst things, it's one of the, I've done a lot of bad things, but it's one of the worst things and that's why it crops into my head. I think the enemy's trying to use it to tear me down. I say, without you, God, I, that thing would put me in hell. It would make a distance between me and you. And I'm crying out to you, Lord. I'm saying, don't allow it. Don't allow there to be a distance between me and you. And so that regret over that thing that I did over 20 years ago brings me closer to God. Not because the thing was good. The thing's not good. People that hurt, not good. It's not good. None of it's good. There's nothing good about it. But my regret, because I recognize who God is and he's the only one who can really do anything about it, leads me then to allow God to do something in me. So the next time you do something wrong, I want you to understand, you should have a godly regret. If you can do something wrong and not recognize that it's wrong or recognize that it's wrong, and this would be worse, and not have any bad feeling about it, you have a real problem. Because you will do bad things and then you will have no regret and then you will go on and do more bad things. That makes you vacuous. It means you will suck the life out of everyone around you as long as it is convenient or needed or your wife wants it or your son wants it or your friend wants it or it'll get you the money you need or whatever. I cannot tell you, I cannot now count on all my fingers and all my toes the number of times that I've sat with someone and tried to call them to accountability and they said, yeah, I get it, God doesn't want that, but I'm gonna, God is going to forgive me because he sacrificed his son for me and so I'm just going to do it because I want to do it. Because I need the money, because I need the time, because that's the way it is, because you don't understand me, how dare you tell me, whatever. And they've turned me away. In 25 years, over 20 times for sure, it's probably more like 40, I've had that conversation. And if you can arise at that point, if you can come to that point where there is no godly regret for the thing that you did wrong, you have a real problem. It's a problem that will lead you, if Jesus walked in this room right now, to say, take my hand, we're leaving, you'd probably say, no, I can't because I've got too many things I've got to deal with. It's the same attitude. You don't regret, and it doesn't lead you anywhere. Now, why? Why should we have a godly regret about ungodly behavior? Let me get it. It's kind of like flipping the coin over, right? And so you almost got to repent before you repent. You got to repent to repent. So we got to turn to God, recognize our behavior is ungodly so we can have regret so that we can't. No, it's not like that. Even the heathen know, even people who don't even know God know when they've done something wrong. Now they have, might have a different standard of what's wrong. And they may over time learn not to regret it and just to move on and just say, oh, I had to do what I had to do. And again, they're in a very bad place when that happens. So we ought to have naturally a regret. Some people get tied up in it. It becomes a huge thing. And spend all their time mourning over the past and the mistakes that they've made and stuff. So they do like four or five things in their entire life. Sleep, eat, watch TV, and regret. It happens. It's sort of the past version of worry. Worries about what's going to happen and regrets about what did happen. And most people... A lot of people who are lost, anyway, spend their time between those two pivots. Regretting or worrying. Regretting or worrying. But we ought to have a regret, and it comes naturally to recognize that we've done something wrong or that our actions are hurting others. You can empathize with other people because you are a people. You are a person. You are a human being. You know what they must be feeling. 
stop and think about it, and should you regret. The second thing that I want you to see, so there is a time for regret. It's when you might hurt others or when you've done wrong. The second thing that I want you to see in here, or that I felt like God was pointing to me at in here, is that there is a natural conclusion of having regretted and experienced a godly sorrow. And it is to make an attempt not to arrive at the same place again. I had a pair of shoes. I was walking in my pair of tennis shoes, and all of a sudden, the ground had, it had rained, but it wasn't raining, and I was walking, and all of a sudden, I noticed my sock on my left tennis shoe was getting wet. What had happened was, over the time that I had worn the shoes, a, a hole had worn in the sole of my shoes, just about three inches back from my toe. And so the water spread from there until it was sort of like dampening the whole bottom of my sock, except for maybe the very front, which probably because it just didn't have enough time. It would have eventually, I think, dampened the whole sock. And so I got home and I took those shoes off, and I knew I had to do one of two things. I either had to repair them, and I'm a big fan of shoe goo. I'm a guy that makes a pair of shoes last a nice long time. If you don't know what shoe goo is, if you want your shoes to last, like tennis shoes and stuff like that, look into it, you can probably stretch them a little while longer. <coughs> I got shoe goo in my drawer at home all the time. These are new, but I have shoes at home that have been gooed. Okay? So anyway, I thought, well, I could shoe goo it, and then I looked at it and said, that's a pretty big hole. There's not much there for the shoe goo to hold. So I put a piece of rubber on the bottom and then shoe goo it. I'm thinking, no, I think these ones have had it. And so I had two choices. I could shoe goo it or I could just shoe it. And so they went in the garbage. Why? Because only a fool that hates wet socks walks around in a pair of shoes that makes the socks wet. So if you have done that which causes you regret, the natural and logical step is stop doing things that cause you regret. So we become the kind of person that helps other people. We become the kind of person that encourages other people. We become the kind of person that thinks about what other people are going to think about when we do what we're about to do. What are, they, are they going to hurt? Are they going to ache? Is it going to break their heart? You need to think about your actions and how they affect other people. You think about how you use your mouth. Will it build up or will it tear down? What's it supposed to do? Build up, never tear down. How do you praise God with your mouth and, tear, and then go and tear somebody down with it? That's just like, it doesn't make any sense. Right? Sweet water and sour doesn't come from the same spring. So you begin to think about your actions. You choose wise choices. You say, well, I'm not wise. How do I choose wise choices? Well, there you go. You come back to God, don't you? So if you haven't already repented and turned to God, then as you realize I've done wrong and I don't want to keep doing wrong, you must now repent and turn to God. You have to let God lead you. And God is faithful to give us wisdom, to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. That means the effects of what we've done and effects of what people have done to us. And then you can do what's right. And we're back to John the Baptist and works of repentance. If you truly have changed, if you truly have turned, then stop being what you know will cause other people pain. And then you won't experience regret. But will you make mistakes? Sure you will. What do you do? Have a godly sorrow? Turn it over to God again. Because God, only God can provide the healing. Right? So this regret, godly sorrow path leads us to a place where we do the best we can every moment of every day. I went, uh, we went uh, family time to see Star Wars. Aaron Arden and Cheryl were going to go see Star Wars. And I was going to take Ariana to see Frozen 2. We would have drawn straws, uh, but as we're driving there, Sherry said, of those two movies, do you really prefer to see one or the other? Because I don't really care. I'm exactly even. I don't care which one I see. I'll, I'll go with the boys or go with Ariana. And I said I was 51% for Frozen 2 and 49% for Star Wars. And so that's why I went to see Frozen 2. 
which worked out real good because Star Wars were sold out and they didn't see a movie at all. So I got to see Frozen 2. I want to tell you that if I had known what Frozen 2 was going to be like before I went and saw it, I would have been 100% for Frozen 2 and 0% for Star Wars. I'm sorry all the Star Wars fans in the room. There was a scene in Frozen 2 that spoke to my heart like no other movie in all time ever has. That's crazy. Is it not? In the worst moment in the tragedy, first of all, early in the movie, kind of like, you know, pre-shadowed the moment, the troll sorcerer in the movie says, what do you do when you can't find a future? When you can't think of what a future is? When you don't know what the future is going to bring? And he says, here's what you do. Do the next right thing. When you can't figure out what else to do, just do the next right thing. Then later in the movie, one of the, one of the main characters, I'm not trying to ruin it for you, so one of the main characters dies, and another one is there mourning their loss, and crushed, crushed, can't get up, crying, sobbing, a puddle on the ground, and singing. <laughs> it's Disney. And um, the character says, I do. I have to do. I've lost everything. I lost someone I love more than life itself. I can't go on. What do I do? And then the character says, oh, the next right thing. And then the character gets up and goes and does the next right thing. And then that leads to another moment, and you do the next right thing. And then another moment, and you do the next right thing. Is this not how you follow God? But if we're regretting the past, then we go through godly sorrow, repentance, turn to the Lord, let God tell us, then we do the next right thing. That's what you do. That's how you live for Christ. That's how you reach new heights in Jesus. You do the next right thing. Right? It's 13 seconds of a Disney movie. <coughs> it's 12 verses in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. He said, I wrote you a letter. You pained me to do it. But now I'm great, I, grateful that I did. You read the letter. It filled you with regret. But out of that regret, you came to godly sorrow. And now I see you doing the next right thing. And when I heard from Titus that you were doing the next right thing, that encouraged me. So now guess what I'm doing? The next right thing. Godly sorrow. Comes out of regret. You've got to first have regret. When I was a young Christian, they used to say to us, you first have to admit that you have sinned before you can believe that Jesus Christ is a Savior and confess uh, and commit your life to Him to be saved. You've got to have the A before you can have the B, C. That's what they used to say. Sounds like that's true. If you have no regret, you don't need Jesus. Jesus said, I came for the sick. You're healthy. You don't need me. If you have no regret, you don't need Jesus. But if you have regret, you recognize there's only so much you can do about it. Then godly sorrow ought to be the next step. Go to God. Let God do something about it. And then when you figure out what God would have you to do, then you do that. And then we come to the third point, and it brings us back to those bottles. When the plane dipped and the gravity dropped and the wine and the grape juice flew up in the air, I couldn't even begin to think about it. I heard some clanking noises, and I thought, oh no, I've just broke the grape juice. That was all I could really do. One of my friends who was in the back seat who had declined to fly the airplane through the zero-g maneuver reached out and grabbed those bottles from where they hovered for all of about four seconds at roughly four foot off the floor behind his seat. And then as gravity reestablished itself, he gently eased them down. 
and none of them broke. We are not alone. We're not alone. James uh, chapter 5, 19 and 20, basically, and I'm paraphrasing because I'm not going to flip there right now, but says that when a person brings a brother back from the brink, it's nothing less than saving a soul. You have a responsibility to practice accountability when you see somebody doing something wrong. It's going to fill you with regret to have to go to that person and talk to them. Hopefully not just because you're uncomfortable, but rather because you don't want to make them feel bad. But you've got to do it. Because if you're not willing to go to a brother or a sister and tell them when they've done wrong, then you're alone. Now you thought I was going to say then they're alone, right? But somebody else might go. But if you're not willing to go to a brother or a sister and tell them that they've done wrong when they've done wrong, then you're alone. They may or may not be alone. That remains to be seen whether somebody else will step up for them or not. But you're alone. And you won't go to them to help them out of the pit. A little, little ways down the road, you may figure out they're not the one in the pit. You are. I can't tell you the number of times that I went to somebody and tried to hold them accountable. And they said back to me, and they said, they said yeah, I, I hear what you're saying, and I am doing what's wrong. But um, I saw you do this, and you're doing what's wrong too. And I said, yep, you're right. And I immediately repented and turned to the Lord. And they were right. It's happened a number of times. Once I even said, yeah, well, why did you wait to bring that up to me until after I just brought this up to you? <laughs> you know, I mean, why did you wait? Why didn't you bring that up to me before? In fact, I'm going to hold you accountable on that too. Because not only are you doing that, and I'm repenting and turning to the Lord right now because you just brought this up, but you didn't bring that to me before. Matthew 18 says, so now you have two sins. Shall we keep a list? Don't wait. You see something, somebody doing something wrong, you go to them and talk to them about it. If it's sin, they need to repent. And if they don't, they have a problem with God, not you. We're not alone. I could not take my hands off the control. You understand, most people's eyes are on the control all day long, every day. Most people are trying to figure out what to do. They're like, how do I get to work on time? How to put my clothes on? How do I eat my food? What foods do I eat? What do I don't? Most of us are going like, am I a little overweight or not? I'm not sure. You know what I'm saying? We are busy running our lives. We need somebody sitting behind us to grab the bottles before they fall and break. We are not supposed to be alone. The church at Corinth wasn't alone. They were a church. They were all together. And yet, all together, they bought into something that was kind of stupid, that they shouldn't have been doing. And they needed somebody like Paul to write them a letter that he was grieved to write so they could get it, so they could go, oh, man, are we stupid? No. We're turning to God, and we're going to fix it. And then they fixed it, and then they began to engage in the next right thing and to continue to do so, so much so that they encouraged Paul and the other missionaries who were all the way over there in Macedonia way far away from Corinth. We're not alone. Don't be alone. Let somebody else grab the bottles if they start to fly. All things are permissible, Paul says. Not all things are profitable, which means you can do anything. You don't really have to worry about, is this going to be... Don't fret, don't fume. Just be doing the next right thing. And then if the next right thing that you think is the next right thing actually turns out to be the wrong thing, God will point it out to you, you will figure it out, or a brother or sister in Christ will come to you and say, hey, that was actually the wrong thing. And I wouldn't go as far as this. If God don't point it out to you, and a brother or sister in Christ don't come to you and point it out to you, if you're active in the church family, if those two things don't happen, then probably it was okay. But if you do figure out that it wasn't, you still got to repent and turn to the Lord. That's your responsibility. It's not anyone else's responsibility to run your life. 
But while you're running your life, there are people with responsibility to examine your life. You say, no, I don't want nobody examining me because they'll find bad things. You don't, want to, you don't want those things corrected? You don't want to live right? You don't want to turn to God? You have no regret? Or do you want them to call you while you're standing in the liquor store with a bottle of liquor in your hand? You want them to call you at the moment that you're going, God, I don't know why you're so mean. And they call you up and you say, hey, you know, I saw you doing this and I think it's uh, sin and you should repent. And then they say, and you're like, wow, maybe God's not as mean as I thought he was. Maybe he's just spanking me. We come to the conclusion. I learned three things when the wine bottles flew up. I didn't know I learned them. I picked them up a little later, but I learned three things. And then one thing is, Sometimes when you're in control of your life, you're going to steer the plane in a way that you just might regret. You know, I spent all the money I had buying that bottle of grape juice. I didn't want to buy a bottle of grape juice. I like grape juice, but 20 bucks for a bottle of grape juice? Come on. You can get like four. Back then, you can get like four of them. And Welch is 100%, you know what I'm saying? At the grocery store. I'm like, what am I buying a grape? But everybody else was buying a bottle of grape juice, you know? So I had to do it too. So I spent all the money I had on a bottle of grape juice, and then I did a one, just one maneuver, and that bottle may have broken. They went all my money, draining into the carpet. And I figured he'd probably have to have us scrub it, you know, because grape juice stays. We'd be scrubbing it out of the carpet. I didn't even want that grape juice. But the moment that I thought it was breaking, I was like, what do I do? I can't crawl over the seat and grab it myself. Sometimes you do just one thing and it can totally ruin everything. It might even be something that makes sense to you and it can totally ruin everything. And I learned that in that moment. The other thing I learned was sometimes you just, you got to be able to depend on somebody else. The church has got to stick together. We are God's people. And, and as far as we're concerned, as far as being the church is concerned, ain't nobody else God's people. Now there may be other people who are God's people. I'm not saying that. But this is your brothers and your sisters. This is your family. This is your local family. I got family lives in California I never hear from. My aunt lives out there. I haven't heard from her in 15 years. Yes, she's technically my family. But y'all are way more my family than she is. This is our family. We have got to be there for one another. And then the last thing I learned was after the grape juice flew up and the grape juice went back down, we did Seven more. Seven more. Seven more zero-G maneuvers. I like zero-G maneuvers. I want to take risks for God. I want to do amazing things. I want to stick my neck out so far that people go, is he stretch armband or what? You know, I want to be that guy. I've been that guy. I want to be that guy every day. And I want you all to do it with me. Because I love you. Because you're in my heart. And there's people that are complete strangers to me, people that aren't, people that are basically enemies to me that I feel the same way about. I'm like, yeah, I want them to come. I want them to... I had somebody message me last night at 1 o'clock in the morning asked me to come to the hospital and pray for them. And these are, this is somebody that just a week ago was hated me. But I'm going to come to the hospital and pray for them in the middle of the night, short on sleep. And I'm going, I'm going this afternoon. I didn't go last night in the middle of the night, but I'm going this afternoon. What I'm saying to you is, we can do this. We're going to have to stand up and correct one another. 
You've got to find your regret. If you're stone cold hard, you know how that went for Pharaoh, right? Romans 9, Paul uses as an example. And ultimately he says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will harden those whom I would harden. Right? I'm going to go there and look this up. This will be our final verse. Because I can't remember how it goes exactly. And we'll be through. I'll show you where you don't ever want to be. And I, I, I found out it's where I don't ever want to be, assuming I can find the right verse. Yep, here it is right here. What should we say then? Is there injustice in God? For he tells Moses, I will show mercy to whom I show mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. You remember, you remember what happened to uh, the Pharaoh, right? Every time Moses asked him to give in, he, God hardened his heart. That's where you don't want to be. You do something wrong, regret it, let it lead you to godly godly sorrow, and then to repentance. Someone else does something wrong, show them so they can regret it, experience godly sorrow, repent, and turn back to the Lord. And let's do it together. From now until either God calls us to a different church, because you belong at a... You've been listening to Pastor Daniel Stevenson preaching from the New Testament about godly sorrow and repentance how easily it is for us to screw everything up with one choice and the plan, the steps, the method that God has used to give us a way back to fellowship with Him. Oh, let us work together, church. Praise God. I hope you're growing to new heights in Jesus today and every day. If you'd like to check us out online, visit churchtoledo.com. If you'd like to give, text G-I-V-E to 419-419-0095. You can text I-N-F-O to that same phone number if you just like updates about what's going on. If you'd like to partner with Ministry in Toledo, you can text the word partner to that phone number. In fact, there's quite a few things. There's a list on our website of things you can text to that phone number and get connected with us via your cell phone. If you'd like to give to the ministry but don't want to do it via your cell phone, you can send a check to 255 Hefner, Toledo, Ohio, 43605, or you can give online on the website. So God bless you today. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you learned and grew and are reaching new heights in Jesus.